Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have in person the real opportunity to to speak with uh, the author of Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. The author is Andrew Seeley. Andrew, you're here in person. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Heath. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's it's Great a, to be with you, actually. Yeah, absolutely. So rarely do I get the chance to actually face-to-face have a conversation. So often it is via the computer. So uh, you're in New York uh, talking about the book, but we have the chance to talk to you today about this really, really interesting book. You've been on the podcast before uh, with your book about think tanks. I wonder if you can fill in that gap between that book uh, and and this book, uh, what's been going on in your life, and and why did you write this book, which is different from the think tank book? It's a very different book, and it's different than anything I've written before. I mean, I, I tell people, particularly academic colleagues, that it's my book of stories, um, and it, and it really was an attempt to tell stories. Um, I, I've spent a long time working in think tanks, many years at the Woodrow Wilson Center, running a program on U.S. Mexico relations, and then being the executive vice president, and now over at the Migration Policy Institute. And we spend a lot of our time writing reports that are read by policymakers and at the Wilson Center did a couple academic books and realized that we were, you know, things that I had done, particularly working on U.S.-Mexico relations, which I've been doing on and off for many years, um, we tend to talk to the same people, you know, and it's useful. And, and we often have really high level audiences we can reach and it's great. But a lot of the things that we talk about really should reach a larger audience. And the way you reach a larger audience is telling stories. I mean, we all interact better with stories than we do just with, with facts outside of the things that, that we're most focused on. And so I set out to try and write a book about, about the stories of the U.S.-Mexico relationship and how things are changing in unexpected ways. And I started to discover things I didn't know. I thought I knew what the stories were at the beginning, and I found all sorts of other things as I was doing this. Now, in the, but this is a certain kind of storytelling, and there's a certain kind of tone to the book, which... Um, is refreshing and, and is different. I wonder if you can talk about that and if you thought about the tone and the way in which you wanted to tell these stories. Because for those that are are, are in the news, following the news, um, it, this is different sort of than the way that we're seeing these relationships playing out. And I'd like to talk about all of that later, but I wonder if you could talk about that choice of, of tone and, and how you wanted to um, uh, approach the stories that you chose and then are telling. 
Yeah, I, you know, I had discovered that there was a lot of really exciting things going on in the U.S.-Mexico relationship, and much of it wasn't going on in government. And I was spending a lot of my time on the government-to-government relationships, but the interesting things were happening at a state and local level. They were happening in culture. They were happening in border communities. Um, and, you know, I kept dropping these stories into policy work and into academic work, but they didn't. But, you know, I was really focused on the government-to-government relationship. And so I set out to write a book about those stories, about how the relationship's evolving outside of politics, influenced by politics, and a time where politics is really negative. I mean, I actually started long before Trump. So I thought, you know, like many of us, that Trump was, you know, just a, a flash in the pan, um, didn't realize he was coming here to stay. But, but you know, knowing that there was some real negative pushback against Mexico here and against the United States and Mexico, but uh, but wanting to tell some of the, the positive things that are happening with, with a bit of nuance. There's, there's actually some parts of it that are darker than others because it's not, you know, even, even the good stories have shades of gray in them, but, but largely it's a, it's a set of things that, that uh, will be surprising to readers. Yeah. Right. And this is not a, um, this is not written in a Pollyannish kind of way. These are, these are um, meaningful stories, but aren't told with um, kind of rose colored glasses that, that, um, uh, uh, not that one might think, but but can be told. Um, and let's talk about some of those stories and some of the illustrations of the nature of the relationship between Mexico and the United States in ways that we don't typically see. And one of those illustrations that I thought was so interesting, which is about the, the airport that connects San Diego and Tijuana. Um, uh, I wonder if you can talk about how this um, uh, shared public resource came to be. Uh, for those that don't know about it, maybe you can briefly describe it. And how did it come to be that that uh, residents of these two different cities are using a, a shared public resource? It's, it's a great story. And it's one I really didn't know how important it was until I got into it. I'd actually lived in Tijuana after college in the early 1990s for about six years, most of the, much of the 1990s, and then in San Diego, and I did a master's at UCSD. And you know, back then they were really different cities. San Diego was this beautiful sort of isolated town, beach town, nice place to go, a little bit dull sometimes. Uh, and Tijuana was this rough and tumble town that had all sorts of potential, but it was violent and tough. And, you know, people would move from everywhere to try and, and make their lives better. And, I, you know, I started to go back and sort of realize how much these were becoming sister cities. They were actually starting to connect. And Tijuana was becoming much more modern, much more middle class, had fabulous cultural life. And San Diego was really aspiring to become a world-class city. And along the way, San Diego kept running into a big problem. And it was that they didn't have an airport big enough to accommodate jets to Asia. Now, that was the driving force in the end. And, and jets elsewhere in the world. But they needed large planes with a long runway. And if you've ever flown into San Diego, it's that tiny airport right in the middle of town. And you can't expand it. Um, you have to either push out the ocean or the downtown or the Marines. And none of those work. So they ended up... After years and years, I mean, really about four decades, but it was the last decade they really started to realize that they needed to do something to become a world-class city. They realized that the answer was not building another airport in San Diego, but using the Tijuana airport, which is right on the border. It already had flights to Asia and uh, has two runways and they're longer runways. And the way you do that is you build a bridge over the fence. There's this old rusted border fence down below. And what they literally did was build a wall over the fence. And it is, you know, now you check into your flight. If you're from San Diego, you go park on the San Diego side, you check in in San Diego in English or Spanish, and you walk across this bridge and you go to your gate. And there is an immigration checkpoint as you go through, but it, it's almost as though you're flying out of an American airport. And it was a really creative idea. And it's become for San Diego and Tijuana, the symbol 
of the two cities becoming sister cities, becoming part of, of a major metro area. And, and the coup de grace on all this is that, you know, San Diego is actually the most conservative part of, of the most conservative urban part at any rate of California. It's largely been a Republican city. And so this wasn't driven by feel good politics or, you know, the trying to get close to Mexico. This was just hard nosed business calculations and the sense that this would really work for people on both sides. And for Tijuana, of course, people love it because they get people to use the airport. And it's turned out to be a motivator for lots of other creative collaboration. Yeah, the, the, the stories in this book um, that you don't hear about uh, that are, are so significant um, include that story of the, of the airport, but, but also technology. And I, I think for most people, this would be um, even more surprising. Uh, I, I wonder if you could talk about uh, where Mexico is innovating uh, the sectors that it's innovating, and also how that innovation relates to um, developments in the United States through partnerships with uh, companies. So, so talk about that that side of Mexico as a as a technology, as as it's a, a Silicon Valley of of Mexico. It, it's a story I really knew very little about. I mean, I had read a couple news articles, but I, I ended up spending uh, some of last summer actually hanging out with tech innovators in Mexico and then in Silicon Valley as well. And it was fascinating because there's this whole tech industry that's been developing under the radar. In in Guadalajara is sort of the, the symbolic center. Guadalajara, Mexico's second biggest city, which used to be the most conservative city. Mexico City was kind of a liberal place, and Guadalajara was the conservative, traditional place, a beautiful colonial town. And it, it's become the, the heart of Mexico Silicon Valley. And it's probably, you know, to be fair, it's probably Silicon Valley of 25 years ago or 30 years ago. It's not the Silicon Valley of today. But you see the beginnings of uh, what was originally um, manufacturing for tech companies around the world and then the back office of tech companies and then moving up the value chain, beginning to be a big part of, of, of the main operations of some tech companies and now beginning to have its own startups. And some very, you know, some some very successful and interesting startups. A lot of them moving into um, financial technology. Mexico, like Latin, most of Latin America, has a lot of people who don't go to banks, and so trying to figure out how you get people into various parts of the banking system using online platforms, but also online commerce, um, some IT services. One of the companies I follow is a company run by Blanca Trevino called SoftTech, that is a major IT provider to a lot of the the top U.S. companies. Top, I think, uh, I can't remember the number, but a number of the, the Fortune 50 companies in, in the U.S. use soft tech. Instead of using Indian companies or American companies, you know, they've discovered that Mexico is useful because it's the same time zone, more or less, and close by. And so you have this burgeoning tech industry. And, and you know, one of my great aha moments was going with a friend of mine, a Mexican colleague, to this 25,000-person tech convention in Guadalajara. And we realized as we walked out, we were having a shot of tequila afterwards at a bar, said, there was no one from the government anywhere there. And in Mexico, anyone who spent time in Latin America, the government's usually everywhere, right? There's usually some government official that appears somewhere. Politics is never far away. True in much of the developing world and emerging emerging economies. And, and we realized that this was a different universe. And the young people who were there were in a completely different universe where the government matters a little bit. It's not that it doesn't. Government can still regulate things. But it's not the main focus of their attention. And there are heroes there. Everyone who's speaking were tech innovators from around the world. And you see this parallel universe where people are 
are really interacting. And, and a lot of this is to go back to Silicon Valley. A lot of the, the learning comes in interacting with Silicon Valley companies. A lot of the financing comes from Silicon Valley. And a lot of the Mexican tech and um, uh, venture capitalists, and there's a whole group of Mexican venture capitalists, a lot of them in Guadalajara, are also investing in U.S. companies so that they learn the ropes and they diversify. So there's this constant back and forth that's been quite incredible. Yeah. Now, many of the stories that you tell in the book, uh, including this one, have been going on. Uh, whether or not they've been widely acknowledged or talked about, they, they have been going on for a considerable amount of time. But as you also mentioned that you started this book um, prior to the Trump administration, how has that changed? Um, what has happened to these different uh, examples of uh, cooperative relationships, um, high-tech relationships, corporate relationships um, after the Trump administration has, has come into place? What's, how does that fit? You know, I, I think there's a danger. I got to, to the point where I had to write the conclusion to the book, and it was, I think, January this year. And my editor said, you got to figure out, is this going forward or going backwards? You know, that was sort of one, you know, I think it was a two-line email to me is, you know, figure out what you think, you know, after telling the story. And I had to figure that out. And, and you know, I think there's some dangers. I think if NAFTA falls apart, some of the investment relationships, some of the, there's a lot about, you know, joint manufacturing where workers in both countries are making the same the same products, you know, in, in integrated processes that could over time fall apart, not immediately, but I think some of the inertia could change. But barring that, I think most of this continues. And, and one of my favorite uh, moments actually was, was seeing when, when Donald Trump went down to inspect his border fences, the, the uh, models that they made of border fences, in, which is near San Diego, the mayor of San Diego, who's a Republican and a conservative, genuine conservative, came out and said, you know, I'm looking to you know, forward to meeting with the president later today and, and telling him about the many forms of cooperation that we have with Mexico. And it was that interesting, subtle note where you realize that, um, that what's happening at a local level there is completely different than what you hear in Washington. And I was in Arizona last week and sort of the same notes, right? I mean, spent a lot of time with, not with the governor, though I did talk to the governor at one point when I was working on the book. But uh, the governor's, Governor Ducey is a conservative Republican, and I was with some of his aides and people close to him. And how much they talk about cooperation with Mexico is simply part of Arizona's economic future. And it's a very pragmatic, different, and, and they're not going to criticize Donald Trump. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to pick a fight with the president of their party, but they, they simply are going to do things differently. Now, a part of why this is, this is changing is that the, the context of immigration has changed greatly over the last 15 years. Um, that relates to the, the relationship, uh, Mexico, uh, uh, developments in Mexico, and also things going on in the United States, but it but also relates to what's immediately going on in the news as we're recording related to these um, horrific detention camps. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, the changing na- nature of flows of people between the countries and also through the countries and how, how that relates to what's going on in the border now, because 15 years is not a long time, but things have really, really changed in terms of um, who's moving where. Well, Heath, this is an issue you know very well. I mean, that the reality is that the whole discussion now has a retro feel because there was a huge surge of Mexicans coming across the border if you go back more than 12 years, right? And then 12 years ago, it started to slow. 10 years ago, it really stopped and almost reversed. I mean, we've seen a, a bit of a reverse flow of, of at least undocumented Mexicans back to Mexico, uh, but but actually a stable population of Mexican immigrants in general in the U.S. I mean, it's quite surprising. 
And, and so, you know, we're talking about building a border fence and, and, you know, Mexican immigrants and at a time where there aren't that many Mexican immigrants coming across. And yet the other thing that has happened is so the, the retro, the, the political discussion, the first political discussion that helped Donald Trump get elected is it really does have a retro feel. I mean, you know, I, I could have seen, I mean, Democrats and Republicans banded together to actually build the, the wall that's on a third of the border. Because at one point there were a lot of people coming across, whether that was the right measure or not, but but nonetheless, you know, there was actually a situation to be dealt with. What's going on now is a much smaller flow of Central Americans, um, and it's a much more complicated flow because people do have, unlike most Mexicans, there are always exceptions, obviously, but unlike most Mexicans, a lot of Central Americans do have plausible asylum claims, perhaps not the majority, but but a lot certainly can put forward um, a claim of, of fleeing in part out of you know fears of violence. And, you know, we're not equipped to deal with that at the border because, again, you know, our policies have a retro feel. We don't really have an asylum system that can sustain, can deal with that kind of flow. And we haven't built it over the past four years. And Mexicans and, and the Mexican U.S. governments have ended up cooperating a lot on the Central American flows. You know, a lot of it is is backdoor discussions or even happens through signaling. But Mexicans have been actually deporting about half of the, the Central Americans that are trying to get to the U.S., a little less than half over the past four years, um, they've become sort of first line of defense. And there've been conversations about how to build up Mexico's asylum system. This is something that's really uncomfortable for people in Mexico because most Mexicans have a connection to someone that migrated. And so suddenly to become the enforcer of migration policies for themselves and for the United States is not a comfortable place. And I think this may become a, you know, this week has become something of a of a turning point because this, the sign, the sights of young people being children, babies being born from their parents, I think really made it hard for many Mexicans to go along with the role the country plays now in this. And, and I'm not sure where it's going to end up. Yeah. And, and in conclusion, um, the title of the book, Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. Um, how how confident are you that this, uh, this title is going to withstand uh, the, the forces of time? Uh, if you're to revisit this in the future, uh, will the forces be driving Mexico and the United States together or or apart? Um, are you hopeful or, or not hopeful about the future? I'm hopeful, but I think the speed could change and it could change a lot. Right. I mean, I, I think there is a, a play out in which we really do. You know, we continue to draw closer very quickly and, and it's happening, you know, and, and the governments get engaged with each other and help push this and NAFTA doesn't fall apart. Um, but I, you know, there's also scenarios in which it really slows down. We don't pull apart perhaps, but, but the movement forward does slow down. But then again, you know, I, 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 when I was looking for hopeful signs, when I was writing, I was trying, you know, doing my list of why I think it, we're moving forward or why we're not. The, the one that tipped me over the balance is what ended up in the conclusion was sports. And, and there you see, you know, last week, the, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico won a joint World Cup bid for 2026. So the book, they, were, they just made the bid shortly after Trump came into office. Mm-hmm. Actually, you see the three countries make this joint World Cup bid. Um, you see the NBA playing four games last year in, in Mexico and making a long-term commitment to Mexico. Major League Baseball in May of this year did the first of, of what they say is going to be an annual series in Mexico in Monterrey. Um, and you have the National Football League, which has done, you know, two games, now two seasons. Uh, they've played a regular season game in Mexico, and they're committed to the future. You see Mexican drivers in NASCAR. I mean, you know, the, the beginnings. And, and, and so, what, you know, my, my reaction to that was if you have to look at politics or you have to look at sports as a gauge of the future, sports may tell us more about the future. And politics isn't unimportant. Um, and I'm mindful I'm on a politics program. So, you know, no no detriment whatsoever to politics. And we're political scientists. But uh 
But on the other hand, I think the future is is ultimately, if you have to look at what's the wave of the future, it's probably sports more than politics, but politics matters on how you get there. Okay. So maybe we all root for Mexico in the World Cup yes. and a victory uh, might might mean something, even if it's just, just symbolic. And I think there are a lot of Americans out there rooting for Mexico. There was a great Sports Illustrated cover, I believe, two weeks ago that, that said it was the Mexican team and it said um, America's other team. And sort of the sense of, you know, got a lot of Mexican origin fans, but you've also got a lot of uh, Americans with no connection to Mexico. That's the next closest country. Yeah. The, the book, again, published by Public Affairs, is Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. Uh, Andrew Seeley, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Steve.